Welcome to the Virtual CPA Success Show, where we're 100% focused on helping service-based businesses achieve success. Are you a business owner interested in learning how to scale your business? Has your business reached over $1 million in annual revenue? Then this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's podcast. Uh, today, there's a little bit of backstory behind our subject. So um, we had, uh, in case no one knows, we actually have a couple of podcasts that we run through Summit, and one of our podcasts is uh, more geared towards CFOs, and we really hesitated uh, having a tax subject on there because a lot of people would use that podcast to go to sleep instead of actually get entertained. And so um, we, we eventually brought uh, Dave Danik on, and that's our most downloaded podcast so far of all of our podcasts. And so... Um, because of that, Jody, of course, wanted to have Dave on his show because he wanted to get his um, his downloads a little higher. So today we're going to talk taxes with uh, Dave and Jody, and um, we're going to start with some very general uh, tax stuff. Um, so that way, I mean, stuff that applies to any company, and then we'll go a little bit more into creative agencies. So welcome to the show, Dave and Jody. Yeah, thanks, uh, Jamie. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Uh, after that introduction, my fee just went up by uh, 50%. <laughs> so uh, it's, really, it's really good to be here. <laughs> yeah, Dave's asking for a raise after this. Um, so, Dave, you want to start off with those uh, some of those general tax rules that people should um, should follow? Yeah, I mean, you know, the tax law, general tax law, doesn't break out what type of business you are in most cases. You know, uh, so tax law uh, is really simply based on saying you brought in money, you spent money, what do you have left over? And that's what you're going to pay taxes on from a business perspective. So there are some general rules that we get a lot of questions on. And as this is a legitimate way to go about things. And, and one of those is timing of income. So if you're a cash basis taxpayer, which we see a lot of agencies are, is saying you pay tax on the cash you receive, and then that is reduced by with deductions of cash you spent. So the tried and true method was let's defer our income and accelerate our deductions. We get a lot of questions like, hey, should I hold on to these checks that I got in the mail? Well, technically no. That <laughs> that's called constructive receipt. So if I get a check in the mail on Thanksgiving and I stick it in the bottom of my desk and wait until January 3rd to deposit it, I would say if you were under examination and it was proved that you actually had the check, that would be saying you actually had the cash. So that old method of saying, let's have a stack of checks in my desk and then run to the bank in January, well, I, we, we don't advise that as much. But one of the things that you can do is that if you have a good handle on your collection cycle with your clients, and you know they pay within 15 or 20 days instead of billing on December 1st, why not shift your billing to be December 20th when you know they're going to pay in January? So that's a, a more legitimate way or an actual legitimate way to say, I know I'm going to actually receive the cash after January 1st. Yeah, a quick question on that, Dave, is that a lot of our clients are at one point got get confused a lot of times and say, you know what, hey, I want to be on a cash base, you know, for my taxes, and so I don't want to be on a accrual base at all. Um, maybe Jamie, maybe this is more of a question for you. I mean, what's can you be on a accrual base on financial statement purposes and cash based on tax? 
Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. I think the accrual base for, um, for your financial statements is really important. And we've talked about this in other podcasts. It really is the correct way to look at your business. You know, you can be, especially in a service-based industry, you can be deceived by your numbers. You know, you could collect $500,000 in month one for work you haven't done yet and feel you're doing awesome. And then month two, you know, not collect anything. And, and again, it, it doesn't really matter when you collect the cash. I mean, it matters for cash purposes, but for analyzing your business and for what your production metrics are, it really matters about when you're doing the work. And so it's really important when we emphasize this over and over again to do accrual for your financial statements. And then on the tax basis to have cash, it's usually not too hard of a conversion. And Dave could go into that a little bit, but to take those accrual books and turn them into cash, it's not, it's not that much work. Hey, so, so Dave, based on that, then on that same scenario you gave, if, uh, let's say I was an accrual-based taxpayer and holding checks back in November, what, what does that do for me? If you're an accrual basis taxpayer, Mm-hmm. Oh, it doesn't really matter. So, I mean, it, it's <laughs> like if you build it, um, then regardless of if you received the cash, it's a, it's a taxable item for you. So uh, the CFOs on our team and, and our tax department have to coordinate a lot because a lot of your financial statement analysis, which is excellent and necessary for a healthy company, is not based upon... <laughs> You know, we talk a lot about cash, but, you know, there are a lot of adjustments that need to be made for your analysis. So on the tax side of things, we are really concerned about the when the cash is received. So, Dave, my follow up question here is, is um, so you've talked about, OK, you can either push cash collections into the next period or possibly accelerate um, cash payments into the current period. It's pretty important to understand what your tax situation is before you do that. Right. Can you explain that a little bit and how you would understand that going into December? Uh, sorry, uh, on the video, Jody just put on his sunglasses, so I got a little. <laughs> uh, but I think what, what, so. I, I I blacked out there for a second. But anyways, in terms of uh, in terms of actually accelerating deductions, that is also a great method uh, to lo- to lower your your tax bill for the given year. So things to look at: one supply, like computers, things of that nature. Maybe you have to change up your, your computer lease schedule so you're paying more out at the beginning of that lease. So if you're used to signing your leases for Apple or Dell in January, shift it into December. Insurance, look at your insurance to see if you can prepay those premiums up into December for the entire year. Because for service-based businesses, it's kind of hard. You know, I, I'm not going to advise you to go buy a pickup truck you know, to get accelerated depreciation. That doesn't make sense. You know, but there are still some other expenses for a service-based company, such as those computers, insurance premiums, things of that nature, maybe some rent that you could accelerate in up a couple months. Hey, Dave, what's the, what's the expense rules? I mean, before most accounts said, hey, 500 bucks, anything under 500 bucks, less expense. What are the new rules based on the, what the tax law? Yeah, so the IRS probably about five or six years ago made it a lot more generous and uh the, the burden for depreciating those types of items, computers, they set the limit to be 2,500, or you can use a limit of 2,500 and not have to worry about it. And we advise against that, or, or no, we advise for doing that, pardon me, just because it much less of a, of a burden on trying to calculate depreciation on all these items. But that's kind of, this is kind of tax accountant nerdy talk. Yeah, but like if I go to Best Buy and buy like three computers and uh, three monitors and stuff like that, and a total seventy five hundred bucks, how how does that get treated? I would advise to 
split them out separately and then use the rules for depreciating for each separate item. I do that because I've seen a lot of times when we pick up a new client, they have this list of equipment <laughs> that just says computer, 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 computer. No, I think we should probably have a better handle of what's floating around our office or across our multiple employees if we have a distributed company so we actually know what's going on here. So I like to have at least another fixed asset schedule where you're actually monitoring what's going on. And if it's Apple Computer Jim, Apple Computer Jane, and then maybe even use serial numbers. Serial numbers, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then maybe the monitors on top of that if they've got additional cost for monitors. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think this is, this is great. And I think, um, you know, we've talked about this a little bit, but, uh, I know Jody's sunglasses distracted you from my real question, but okay. So we talked about <laughs> the, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, the general tax rules of obviously pushing back revenue and accelerating expenses do help your deduction. But with that, it's important to know where you're at, right? Like there's certain years where it's important to do that. And there's certain years you might not want to do that. So how do you get that handle on, Okay, December 1st, knowing where your taxes are at or might be so you can make those decisions better. It's all based on forecasting, which is not exactly, I don't want to say my department, but in terms of we get information from the client or from our CFO team to say, in June, how are we looking from a taxable income perspective? And June timeframe, we generally have a decent idea of where we're going to end up. And we can make the adjustments to say, here's what our taxable income is going to be versus what our book income is going to be. Then once we start getting into September, October, we've got nine to 10 months of data. So we should have a really good handle on where your taxable income is going to be and then provide guidance in months 11 and 12 to say, maybe we want to push out this job or, hey, we can maybe accelerate. Or if we pick up this income, it's not going to impact us. If we do receive the income, let's not let's put some aside in our tax reserve account so we have it available when we have to pay those taxes come April fifteenth. Yeah, I think Dave pointed out a good point there. The uh, the forecast is huge, you know, and that's a dynamic forecast, so it's constantly changing all the time. So, like you mentioned in June, we're not looking backwards and saying, "Hey, how much do we have so far taxable income from January through June?" and let's multiply that by two and assume it's going to be the same thing. That very rarely works because. Uh, you know, everything's so dynamic in, in everybody's businesses, especially in the creative agency world. So having that forecast is really important because you know what the actual data is from January through June. And then you should know what the forecasted remainder of the year is going to be. So like say your taxable income is a half a million dollars from January through June. But then from July through December, you're only forecasting $200,000, you know, for whatever purpose. And so then we're basing all that tax, uh, you know, once we do the adjustments, we're basing the tax on 700000 not doubling the January through June or, you know, any other part of that. And so then the, the key there, I guess, is that every month as the forecast changes, because life happens, then we look and see, hey, where, where are we at? And so instead of 700000 maybe we had a great, you know, August and September, now we're at $800,000. So we need to make that small adjustment that we're talking about. And then, then it becomes really important towards the end, like Dave was saying that, well, if, if it's big enough where we've now we've got cash in the banks, that's not we're not worrying about that. And we want to cut our burden down. Then, then maybe a couple of computers, like he was saying, if we need to buy them anyways in the first quarter, you know, let's accelerate that purchase or, or whatever. It, it makes total sense. But like what Dave did say is it does not make sense to drain your cash to save taxes. That that is a silly, silly thing to do. Um, and 
don't recommend it whatsoever. Yeah, but even, you know, but even from a more positive perspective, when we do know what our tax liability is going to be, hopefully we have one. That means you have a profitable profitable business. But what it does mean that if the owner wants to take a profit distribution, if we have this bucket of cash at the end of the year, we can say, okay, we saved X amount for taxes. This remainder, if you want to take a profit distribution, hey, enjoy the fruits of your labor. Take it out. But we know we need to keep this aside. I've seen too many stories of where they, they take out too many distributions, whether they want to buy a house, they want to buy a car, you know, and then it comes back and then here's the tax bill. And it, it just creates a stress that our job is to make taxes not surprising and not stressful, at least in our department. And that's one of the biggest value adds that our department can add to our clients and agencies. And I think the one thing that everybody might not connect here is when you're talking about a forecast and we're talking about forecasting, especially for taxes, it is important to have a balance sheet forecast as well. A net income forecast isn't going to get you there when it comes to taxes, especially if you're on a cruel basis. If you're on a cruel basis, you need to understand where your balance sheet is going to be at the end of the year to really understand what your tax liability is going to be. And with that, you can, if you have a, a dynamic forecast, like Jody said, you can kind of play with the numbers, you know, kind of like these situations we're talking about. What happens if we, if we don't collect this AR and it's sitting in AR, what's that going to do to our tax um, benefit and that type of stuff? And then, you know, the second part of that is, you know, if you're already forecasting a loss for the year and you know that on December 1st, then you might not want to accelerate the expenses this year because it's not really going to help as much as if you were to have that in the following year when you're hopefully going to have that gain. And so I think that's the importance of having that forecast is it really gives you the ability to understand what those numbers are going to do and plug those numbers in there and say, what happens if we do this? What will it do to our tax liability? And to know that in December or November or October, the earlier you do it, the better the conversations you're going to have and the more you're going to understand those next steps to take. Yeah. Our goal usually is to have our tax situation wrapped up by October 15th. Because like, even if I tell a client what their tax liability is going to be in late December, then sometimes that that's only four months that if something major swings happen or you have some other events that you want to take care of, it does not provide too much time to even have to build up a reserve if I haven't been doing it through the year. So yeah, all, all good points. So I should but, be uh, tax planning on April 14th. Is that what you're telling me? That's not the time to be doing my, my tax planning. Well, uh, if, if you have a liability, pay it as late as you can if you want to use the, if, but as long as you have it, that's, uh, I don't care when you pay it. Yeah. More importantly, you should be surprised on April 14th, right? So it yeah. should be, uh, you already got the money set aside. We're going to know what the tax situation is. January, not, not April, you know, November, not April, October, yeah. not April. You know, that's the, uh, that's the big, the big thing. Okay. So let's kind of um, turn directions here a little bit and let's, let's talk a little bit more about creative agencies. So we've talked more about general taxes, but um, you know, we have a lot of creative agencies that listen to this podcast and that's really who it's um, oriented for. So what should I be thinking of as a creative agency or an owner of a creative agency that I might not be thinking of in terms of uh, taxes? Yeah, this is one that I've seen uh, uh, with the new tax law. I've seen this a handful of times and it's uh, based upon this new qualified business income deduction. So the tax law is a couple of years old, but the big news was the big fat corporations, Apple's, Facebook's, GM, were getting all these tax breaks. But really, it was structured also to give all businesses a tax break through this QBI deduction. And the law was written that they wanted to try to get as many people to get this tax break from a business owner perspective. But they had some carve outs where they say you're, you're not going to get it. So accountants like us, we don't get it. Attorneys don't get it consultants don't get it. And that was kind of the scary one for creative agencies because a lot of people say, yeah, we 
do consulting. Well, accountants do consulting. Plumbers could say they do consulting, you know, when they're trying to advise someone. But I think so. We've seen that most of our creative agencies are actually qualifying for this because really it's not as much consulting as it is that, you know, I'm actually designing a website or I'm creating a marketing plan or uh, developing the marketing plan. Um, so, but also look at the deliverable that you're providing to your client. If it's tangible in terms of a website, then I would say you're not less of a consultant, but more of a, maybe an engineer who do qualify for it. So I would say if you go to your account and you're not qualifying for the QBI deduction, which is a 20% deduction for you, you'd really want to go back and say, let's beat this up a little bit more and see if we qualify. Let's look through the exemptions. That's what the first one for agencies. I would say double check. Real quick on that one, there's a big hubbub about should I be a C-Corp versus S-Corp versus LLC, which is going to be the more beneficial uh, for that yeah. QBI deduction. What, what's your take on that? Well, the QBI deduction is only applicable to flow-through entities like an S-Corp or a partnership, not a C-Corp. C-Corps certainly get a nice 21% rate, but most of those, if you're a C-Corp and you're an agency, a lot of those profits are coming out as dividends, which creates a different layer of tax on you. So I would say if you're an agency that's retaining cash and you've got big plans for acquisitions over the next five to six years, and you're building up that cash and not distributing to the owners, a C-Corp is possible and that it might make sense. But for most of our clients still saying as an S-Corp is probably the most tax advantageous way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. And, and for that QBI um, that you were talking about, Dave, is so does, do you have to change the way you market your company in order to make sure you're not considered a consultant? Or what other tips can you give to make sure that, um, you know, again, that you aren't really in that consulting field? Yeah, I would, I would scrub your website just to see how much consulting is put on your advertising uh, that you're go- going out to clients on. Look at your statements of work to see what the deliverable is how much is actually specifically consulting versus other, hey, I designed the website, I designed a logo, things of that nature, and keep that to a minimum. Great. All right. So what else um, for uh, for our creative agencies out there, what other tax um, implications should we be thinking about? Well, the other one that we attacked a lot with our clients is the R&D credit, which has been around for a long time, probably back into the 60s. And the reason Congress put it into play was they wanted domestic companies to start investing in technology so they could create jobs and keep our economy at the forefront of technology. So obviously though, the world has shifted in the past 50, 40 to 50 years and creative agencies are more of in a software intangible space, but the credit does apply to companies that are creating software and actually designing websites and code does qualify for that. So you have to look at your, or our agencies need to look at the projects that they're working on that you're really not getting paid for. There are some carve outs where if even if you are getting paid, we can look at our contracts to see if it qualifies. But if you're investing into new technology and you're actually testing different ways of doing it, this could be a pretty nice write-off, especially for early stage agencies that might be really trying to build up a new product or something like that. And so you could save 10% on your labor costs from a credit. So if I'm paying, if I had 
if the qualified research expenses come out to be about $100,000, my credit could be $10,000. That's a lot of money. So certainly something that you should dive into to see if you qualify for that. So when is the time to make that decision? You know, because I, I, from what I've had yeah. conversations with you, it seems like there's quite a bit of work that goes into making sure you get that deduction. So is, is it okay to, to wait till the project's over and then kind of do the evaluation and try to go back? Or what's what's the best way to look at that? I would say it's April a, 14th. It's a lot harder. It's a lot harder when you, after the fact. And because some of these research expenses are, everything qualifies that was related to this project. So the moment that you sat around this boardroom table to say, what do we want to do tomorrow? And if it's something new technologically, put the clock on your time and say, we want to even administrative time, CEO time, CTO time, all the developer time, pick up all those dollars that you're using your resources for as a company to create something new to see if it qualifies. But yes, you can go back. You can even go back three years and claim the R&D credit. So it's harder to get the data together and to have like a, a tighter case in case you were examined, God forbid. But uh, we've certainly filed three years past on some of these projects. And no one wants to go into an IRS audit with a bunch of napkins with hours scribbled on it, right? Like you want to have, uh, <laughs> you want to have some good documentation behind this. Yeah, it's a lot harder to prove when you say uh, employee A worked 50% of their time on this. Employee B was 25% of their time. Those round numbers start getting a little bit more harder to justify. Yeah, For sure. That's good. All no right. napkins. Yeah, no napkins. I'm going to take a quick second here to throw our email address out there. So um, we've gone through a lot of tax stuff here today. So if you have any questions, um, you can always email us at vcfo at summitcpa.net and anything related to the podcast, you know, feel free to email us. We'll um, get back to you quickly. We want to make sure the podcast is um, having topics that you're interested in, or if you want to be a guest, we'd love to have you on. So again, that email address is vcfo at summit, S-U-M-M-I-T, cpa.net. We're definitely looking forward to hearing from people and have uh, definitely brought some topics up that have come through those emails. So please email us. So we're kind of getting to the end of our time here. Any final topics, uh, Jody or Dave, that we may want to um, talk oh, about heck here? Yeah, the the one I get all the time is uh, multi-state tax returns, whether it's sales or income tax. Oh. Uh, how does that nexus rule work, especially when when it, when you're in a uh, creative agency? Because I know a lot of like I've just speaking with one just recently. Uh, they were East Coast agency, and they're like, "Yeah, I filed tax returns in one state." Like, oh, how many? Where, where are, are all your employees in that state? And like, no. I'm like, well. Mm -hmm there's a good possibility. And then if you can kind of explain how that all works, Dave. Well, at this point of the podcast, we'll let everyone go get a cup of coffee. So we'll be going over this for the next 60 minutes. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it's a, it's a, it's unfortunate. Well, it's, it's not unfortunate. I, I don't know. I don't know how I view of it. There's 50 different States and they all want a piece of the pie. So you can't blame these jurisdictions for wanting more tax dollars. So they're crafting their rules for their own benefit. But the general practice of what I'm seeing is that more states are saying, we don't care where you're located. We care about where your clients are located. And if you're a creative agency, I'm almost certain that everyone listening is going to have a client that is not based in the state that they're organized in. So you need to look at your client list and see how that state that they're located in taxes income. So for instance, California, most populous state, 
a high taxing state, they changed their rules to say, if you have sales in California in excess of $560,000, you are required to register to do business in our state and then you get to pay us franchise tax. So they changed it to be the economic nexus where they say, I don't care if you're in Baltimore, you're gonna pay in California. So man, Jody, it's a good question. It's a long answer because there's 51 different jurisdictions because I'm now including DC into it. It can become very burdensome and we have seen people be impacted by it, especially when they start hiring people in new states because now the state knows that something's going on. So you're saying that because we have like 20 some employees, 30, probably 30 some employees outside of Indiana, maybe even more than that right now, there's a good possibility we should be filing tax returns in all those states? No, I'm saying that we should analyze if we have to file in those states because now that we have an employee footprint, the risk is higher that the state could come after us. Mm-hmm. So, because some states aren't don't do the economic test, some that, states say, "Hey, that's right." Some states will say, "We don't care if your clients are located, but we do care if you are producing your work in our state." Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, meaning attending a board meeting in that state, meaning attending. New York, New York City was big on saying the fact that you attended a client meeting in the city created nexus and then you had to pay taxes to New York City, which then meant you had to pay taxes to New York State. You know, so how it does a snowball effect. There's not a clean cut answer. It takes a lot of analysis, but I think you should just be asking the question of your tax account to say any concern here. Mm-hmm. And then the other last question that that was income tax with, with sales tax. What, what mm-hmm. are you what are you seeing on the sales tax front? Because that seems to be something that's more and more. Actually, a lot of a lot of these firms may qualify for sales tax now. Well, yeah, it's certainly something to analyze. So the old method of sales tax was if I sold a tangible good, uh, that was the only thing that was taxable. If I was selling a hat or a T-shirt or something like that. But now states are hungry for more revenue, so they're saying maybe we want to tax services. And SEO services, SEM, website design, hosting services are all becoming targets for increased taxation from a sales tax front. So the big one we see is Texas. That one, I think Hawaii also has some rules on taxing web design services in particular. So if you have clients there, certainly something to monitor. And if you have an employee in that state, then you really should be registering for sales tax on those services. And this is a big one, not from a necessarily a tax perspective, but even from like a business, because if you have an agency that's bidding on this work that doesn't charge sales tax on it, well, that's like a seven or 8% swing in quoting that, you know, you could be up against and you're just trying to follow the rules, you yeah. know? So or, or even worse is that maybe you have that big client and let's say you weren't very profitable on it, something went wrong. And now all of a sudden you get this notice from the state saying, hey, uh, you owe us 7% on the revenue, um, not the profits, but the revenue. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that client's try, policy is, yeah, good luck. You know, maybe you haven't seen that client in two or three years. Yeah, try you know? going back and collecting that from that client is very negligible. <laughs> oh, disaster. And then, so that that is, that's kind of a contract question too with your attorneys, what kind of language should I have for sales tax liabilities in the event something comes back and it was found that it was subject to sales tax. 
And I think there's some really good companies out there that specialize specifically in the sales tax. Do you have any recommendations at all, Dave? Well, the big players are like an Avalara or a tax jar, you know, where they, they're actually processing returns and they can build some APIs that link into different softwares to make it calculate pretty, pretty nicely. Um, but what I have found though, it's still really difficult to say if I'm actually subject to it. So there is a cost that I find that agencies will have to incur if you want to get a full nexus study which is saying, I'm gonna go through your customer list, I'm gonna go through your employee list, and then I'm going to give you a report of saying, this is where you should be registering for sales tax. It's big in the media right now, like I just read an article in the Wall Street Journal, they were saying small businesses and the burden that they're having to overcome to properly do sales tax. And it's a big cost, so. Yeah, I don't want to leave on this sour note, but certainly something to monitor. <laughs> I think the, the important thing is, is just to talk. Um, I think the starting point would be to talk to your own CPA, right? Kind of talk to them about both these oh, subjects, yeah. both sales and income tax. And then they'll, they'll kind of, they should at least understand how complex you are and whether you need to go to a specialist or not. And I think that's really the, the starting point. Cause like you said, I mean, we could talk, we could talk about this for five hours and, and not even give you enough information on it. So I think it's, um, it's super important just to have that conversation with your CPA and then they'll be able to identify how complex you are based on the contracts you have, based on where your employees are, and really kind of go through those evaluations to help you get through it. Yeah, and I, I look at that as an extreme positive because for those folks that weren't even aware of it, now at least it puts on their table so that when they're bidding that big job in, in a state that does have that sales tax issue, at least they're aware of it now versus you know three months down the road when it's too late, they've already signed the contract and they're stuck with this extra 7% cost that they weren't expecting. Yeah, yeah it's, just, it's good knowledge to have. The decision is typically up to you, the client, and what's your risk tolerance? Because we also had instances where they were there for two years, then they left. Do I go back and do that sales tax? I said, <laughs> it's not up to me. To, I, my job, our job is to tell you the rules, you know, and, and you might want to, your risk tolerance may say, okay, let's not file and move forward. That's up to you, but uh, we can certainly, or we try to certainly give that advice to our clients. Of, Here's what the rules are. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I definitely want to thank both Dave and Jody for coming on. I think we had a lot of good topics today and there's a lot of information. And I think we maybe need to have a second podcast with you on Dave because I know there's even more to talk about when it comes to taxes. So definitely appreciate you guys coming on and thanks for joining the show. Yeah, yeah that was great. Thanks for having thanks, me. Thanks, Dave. Enjoy this episode? Visit our website at summitcpa.net to get more tips and strategies for achieving virtual CPA success. We're here to be a resource in this ever-changing industry.